The sermon text this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through chapter 17, verse 8, page 822 in the Pew Bible. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has, according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father, the way that text ends is exactly the outcome that I pray you would accomplish by the Spirit this morning that none of us would see anyone but Jesus only. Our eyes the eyes of our hearts would be open to see him in his glory and in his power to see him as this mighty, omnipotent, glorious king who moves toward sinners and touches them and says, rise and have no fear because I came for you before I came to you and I was touched for you on my cross so that I can command you now to rise and have no fear. Lord, I pray that that this sermon would tell the truth about that king And that our hearts would love and embrace the truth 
about Jesus. I pray that for those who are my brothers and sisters at the beginning of this message already, and I pray it for those not yet my brothers and sisters, that by your Spirit's work, at the end of this message, they might be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is not like any other king. Every other king has a crown, but what, set Jesus, what sets Jesus apart is, is where and how he wears his crown, because Jesus wears his crown on his cross. And that means that the way we understand the kind of king he is is going to be radically different from the way we think about any other kind of king. Uh, Because Jesus chooses to wear his crown on his cross, that, that means, friends, that we must never pit Jesus's crown against his cross as though it were some kind of zero-sum game, that the more we emphasize Jesus's crown, his kingship, that the less we would have to emphasize his cross, or the other way, that the more we saw him on, the more clearly we saw him on his cross, the less clearly we would see his crown. You know, it never works that way in the Bible. Our hearts might, the logic of our natural wisdom might lead us in that direction, but you know, that's never the direction that things go in the Bible. It was to a dying and crucified Jesus Christ. Remember this, it was to a dying and crucified and bleeding Jesus Christ that the thief on the cross turned and made this petition, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it was the Roman centurion who watched Jesus die in Mark 15, who watched his crucifixion, who stood at the foot of Jesus' cross and watched him die. It was that centurion who declares in the Gospel of Mark, that Roman, that pagan, that Gentile, who looks at Jesus as he's dying and says, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, for both of those men... The cross did not obscure Jesus' crown from view. The cross brought Jesus' crown into view. You know, and it works the other way, too. Jesus' crown, when you see it rightly, brings his cross into view. That's what happens in heaven's worship in Revelation 5. Do you remember what the the heavenly company is singing in Revelation 5? When they see the lamb standing as if slain, they say, worthy are you. In other words, you're the king. And how do we know you're the king? For you were slain. The key to Jesus' crown is in his cross, and the key to Jesus' cross is in his crown. We measure Jesus' cross by his crown, and his crown by his cross. 
And this morning, we're going to be looking at Jesus' transfiguration. And that's, that's exactly what the transfiguration is about. The relationship between Jesus' crown and his cross, between his kingship and his suffering. And these things are never at the expense of one another. They are both the expression and the explanation and the demonstration of the other. This is what the gospel tells us. And Jesus shows that to us in both of his transfigurations. Yes, I said both, because there are two in Jesus's ministry. And this morning, we're going to look at both of them, our text describes the first and prepares us for the second. So I've got just two headings for you this morning, violating all Presbyterian protocol. We're going to look at Jesus' first transfiguration, which shows us the power of his crown. And then we're going to look at Jesus' second transfiguration, which shows us the power of his cross. So let's think first about uh, the power of his crown in Jesus' first transfiguration. And, and this is uh, chapter 17, 1 through 8. Now, now let's remember where we left off last week. And the reason I had Bill read verses 24 through 28 from chapter 16 in addition to 17 verses 1 through 8 is because you can't understand verses 1 through 8 in chapter 17 unless you see their connection with the end of chapter 16. You've got to remember that when Matthew wrote his gospel, he didn't get to the end of verse 28 and say, okay, new chapter. There were no chapter divisions. There were no verse markers. And the action just flows straight in. These are intimately connected scenes. Remember what we saw last week. Jesus did two massive things last week we saw in verses 24 through 28 at the end of chapter 16. First, he lays claim to our lives. Every part of our lives. He lays claim to everything that we are. He says, if anyone would follow after me, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants, literally, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever is willing to lose his life for my sake, he will find it. He is laying massive claim we saw over every one of his disciples' lives. Every single one of his disciples. That means every single one of us who is in Christ this morning. And if you are a non-Christian, you need to know that if you are feeling the call of Jesus upon your life, and that's why you're here in worship, you need to know that what Jesus is calling you to is to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow him. There is a cost to following Jesus Christ, and there is no room for him to be anyone's hobby or anyone's good luck charm. Jesus is laying massive claim to our lives, 
And he's also doing something else we saw in those four verses, or those five verses. He's making massive claims about himself. So he's not, he's not inviting us to give our lives for him in the first instance. He's calling us, insisting upon us to give him our whole lives because that's what he's done for us. And secondly, he is making massive claims about himself in verses 27 through 28. He's saying, listen, I am the son of man and I am the one who is going to come back one day. I'm going to return to the earth one day in my glory with, with all of my angels and in the glory of my Father. And when I return, I am going to be the judge of the living and the dead. And I will personally on that day repay each person according to what he or she has done. I will be the comprehensive and the complete judge of every single person. Every, the path of every life is going to lead to me. It's a massive claim about himself. This is why you should read your Bible slowly. Because you need to let those things sink in. Because unless the person who says that is God incarnate, you should hate him. You should despise him. You should reject him. You should fight against everything he stands for. You see, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, give me your present and all of your future. Hold nothing back from me. And when you ask me, why should I? My answer to you is, I'm going to come back one day and judge everyone. Well, if you're listening carefully to him, you would immediately recognize that he wants present value out of your life based on a future promise from him. And your natural question, just like the disciples, was how can we know that you're to be trusted? I mean, you look pretty ordinary in the present. And on top of that, Jesus, you just told us about 10 verses ago that you're going to be crucified, that you're on a suicide, you're on a suicide mission to Jerusalem. And that's where verse 28 comes in which I was conspicuously silent about last week. Many of you probably noticed. Because Jesus says again something very radical in verse 28. He grounds what he has just said in verses 24 through 27. He says this, here's my guarantee. He says, truly, this is how you know what I'm telling you is true and why you should follow me. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. You see what he's saying? He's saying, guys, some of you who are listening to me are going to see me in the glory of my kingdom before you die. 
Now, lots of people over the years have said, well, see, that means Jesus believed in his earthly ministry that his second coming was going to be very soon. And therefore, since the second coming has not happened in 2,000 years since his resurrection, that means he's a fraud. Friends, people who say that don't know how to read. They stop at the chapter marker, chapter 17, and they say Jesus was a fraud. But friends... Look at what happens next. Jesus has just made a promise in verse 28 that some of the twelve are going to see the glory of Jesus before they die. And what is the very next thing that happens? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. This is the inner three of the twelve, the same three who will be with him in Gethsemane. He took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, literally metamorphosed before them, and his face shone like the sun. That's glory, by the way. He will come in the glory of his Father, verse 27, right? His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He will come, verse 27, in the glory of his Father. And on the top of the mountain, he is transfigured. His face shines like the sun. And the glory of his Father comes and testifies about him. Jesus is totally changed for this brief period of time. It's Jesus, notice this, who leads his disciples up to the top of that mountain. These same disciples whom he had just said really hard things to at the end of chapter 16. I mean, just one body blow after another about the cost of discipleship and how radical faith in Christ is really is that they're going to have they're going to have they're trusting a person who is telling them he's going to suffer judicial execution and then be raised from the dead these are hard things to believe he looks so ordinary and then he says on top of that you have to give me all of who you are and Jesus knows how hard those things are he knows it He knows it's hard for his disciples to hear this. He knows the cost of the discipleship that he is calling them to. And so he leads them up to the top of this mountain to show them something, to give them a glimpse, glimpse, to give them a clear vision of who he is so that they will be anchored 
And even this, notice, even this, when the veil is just pulled back just briefly, they're overwhelmed. What they see is not addition, but they see subtraction. They don't see a new glory being poured out upon Jesus. What they're seeing is the veil that has always been upon the glory he has always possessed pulled back. So the curtain is pulled back just a little bit. And he is transfigured. Mark reports, when Mark reports and describes uh, what... uh, what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, probably uh, because Mark's gospel is probably the digest, if you will, of Peter's preaching, is probably Peter's description. And when Mark describes in Mark chapter 9, he says, he says that Jesus' clothes were made whiter than any launderer on earth could ever bleach them. So his face shines like the sun, glorious. And have you ever tried to look in the sun? It's not, don't do this. I have tried this. This is not a good plan. It's overwhelming, right? It's overwhelming visually. Do you think, friends, that if you saw Jesus Christ in his glory right here, that you could handle it? When you have a mental image of Jesus, do you picture Jesus as he is now, not Jesus in the three years of his earthly ministry? or really the 33 years of his earthly ministry. Do you picture him like that, that you could just, he wouldn't stand out from a crowd, or do you picture him the way that Saul of Tarsus encountered him on the road to Damascus, or the way that the apostle John encountered him on the island of Patmos? Both of them, when they saw Jesus in his present glory with no veil, they fell on the ground as men dead. It is overwhelming, the glory of Christ. And just this little peak that Jesus gives to his disciples to sustain them overwhelms them. And then when the Father's testimony is added, it overwhelms them. And then when you add in the fact that Moses and Elijah are there, these are two inhabitants of heaven. What are they doing on the mountain with Jesus? I mean, there's all these Things that are coming together. Jesus is personally transformed. His face shines like the sun. His clothes are as white as light. It's just like Psalm 104 when the psalmist speaks to the Lord. He says, you've covered yourself with light as with a garment. And then Moses and Elijah are there. Why them? And they're talking with him. And then the Father's glory cloud comes down and surrounds the mountain, and the Father speaks. See, when all those things happen, there's there's a series of interpretations that are offered in the text. What does this mean? And what's at issue is, who is Jesus? That's the issue. What's his true identity? Who is he? And you have Peter. (laughs) Ever the man of action before reflection. Peter's great. You just got to keep loving Peter. (laughs) 
In verses 3 and 4, Peter says, okay, the right interpretation of this is I'm going to help Jesus because it's hot up here. And we need to have a place. I mean, this is Moses and Elijah. These are honored guests. Lord, if you think it's good, I'm going to, I'll do it. I'll do it. It's really good that I'm here so you don't have to do this yourself. I'm going to make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one Elijah. Now, it's, a, it's, it's an offer to honor Jesus that actually dishonors him. Because it places Jesus on equal footing with Moses and Elijah, and the Father won't even let Peter finish his sentence. You notice that? He just comes while he's still speaking, verse 5 says. You see that? While he's still speaking, the Father just can't handle this nonsense. It's time to listen, Peter, to what this really means. And the Father comes and declares that this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, listen to him. When I was a kid, my dad used to say to me, I didn't realize there was an ear in your mouth. It's a very dangerous thing to share with you. This is the third time now in Matthew's gospel that the Father has vindicated and declared the identity of Jesus. This is the same phrase, mostly, that the Father uses at Jesus' baptism. Jesus tells Peter just a few verses ago in chapter 16 that when Peter makes his confession in verse 16, in chapter 16, he says, you know, Jesus says, hey, who do you say that I am? And you remember Peter representing the disciples says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then you remember what Jesus does immediately after that? He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. In other words, Jesus's identity is always the passion of the father to disclose that people would know his true identity. This is the burden the Father has in history, that Jesus, his Son, would be known for who he is. And now we're at the third time the Father has emphasized this for the disciples. He is honoring and celebrating Jesus' inequality with Moses and Elijah. He is honoring and celebrating Jesus' superiority over Moses and Elijah because neither one of them is a son of God. Neither one of them has had this divine approval announced over them from the sky and from the heart now and, and then from this cloud on the top of the mountain. No, they're, they're in a different category. Jesus is higher. Peter was wrong. But here's the question. How much higher is Jesus? And that's why we need to think about why it is Moses and Elijah who are on the mountain. Oh, that is so important. So important. Why is it Moses and Elijah who are with Jesus on the mountain? Now, you've heard a bunch of theories about that. So have I. 
But before we dive into it, I want you to think about who's not there on the mountain. This is interesting. I mean, when you, when you survey the Old Testament, and you think, okay, who are the great figures of the Old Testament? Moses would certainly be on that list. But Elijah? Particularly given the way Elijah's ministry ends... And given the way Matthew begins his gospel when he says this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. Why isn't Abraham there? Why isn't David there? Why isn't Daniel there? Why isn't Isaiah there? Why is it Moses? That one makes sense. But why is it Moses and Elijah? What is it, friends, that pairs them together? What what is it about Jesus' presence at the top of this mountain that draws Moses and Elijah down together from heaven and only them? There's one thing that Moses and Elijah have in common that separates them from every other Old Testament figure. Do you know what it is? Turn with me to Exodus 24, verses 9 through 18. Second book in the Bible. And uh, we're looking at page 65 in the Pew Bible, friends, if you don't have a Bible and uh, with you. 9 through 18. And then Moses, at verse 9, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70, the elders of Israel, went up and they saw the God of Israel. They're going up, they're ascending Mount Sinai. Okay? There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now, you have to have a sense that they're still pretty far away. So then, notice what happens in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, now to Moses, Moses is being singled out. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. He's going higher. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. In other words, Moses is saying, I might be gone for a while. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Not to Moses and Joshua, to Moses. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. See, Moses is on the top of the mountain, and he is enveloped in the glory of God. Now turn with me to to 1 Kings chapter 19. Page 301 in your pew Bible. Now this is at the end of Elijah's public ministry. 
Uh, he's had a hard time. He's had a, a setback, has not responded well to trials after his triumph on Mount Carmel. And the Lord leads him for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God, which is Mount Sinai. So Elijah now is also, hundreds of years later, is now at Mount Sinai. There he came to a cave, verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. In other words, what Elijah is saying is, it is hard to follow you. It is hard. And Moses knew the same thing. It was hard to obey the Lord. And the Lord brings him up on the mountain and shows him, envelops him in his glory. And here Elijah has much the same burden in ministry. And now look what happens. And he said, this is the Lord speaking to Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. The first thing that Elijah sees is a tornado. And, he, and the, Lord, the Lord says, I'm not in that tornado. Great power. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And again, great power, and God's not there. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And notice, no negation, meaning that God's presence and power are in that whisper. So you see what this means? Go back to Matthew 17. Do you see what this means? What this means, friends, is that the reason Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on the mountain is because Jesus is the glory of the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. This is a reunion between Yahweh and the two who were on Mount Sinai at different times with him, enveloped in his glory. And so the point that Jesus is making by taking his disciples up onto that mountain and showing them that he is transfigured in glory there with Moses and Elijah. Jesus is wanting Peter, James, and John to know that not only is he glorious, but his glory is Yahweh's glory. And that the way he is going to use his glory, the way he is going to use his crown is on his cross. That that's what it means for him to be Yahweh, the all-powerful one. That even in what looks to the world like a whisper, like a failure, like a dying breath, that that is the power that literally sets the universe right, renews the cosmos, makes peace with all things through the blood that Jesus sheds on that cross, that Jesus is Yahweh. And that Yahweh in Jesus is going to use his crown, his power on a cross. Now, friends, Jesus, if Jesus wanted Peter, James, and John to see his crown, 
on his cross, he wants us to see the same thing. You want to know what kind of king Jesus is? Don't you dare look at his crown except through the lens of his cross. What kind of king is this who would spend his glory to rescue sinners? What kind of king is this who would allow himself to suffer for the sake of rebels against him? What kind of king is it who would make himself small and allow himself to be mocked and criticized and placed in a kangaroo court under human justice? What kind of a king would follow that path for the sake of sinners? I'll tell you what kind of a king. The king you should love and I should love with all our lives. The king from whom we should hold nothing back. The king we should delight to spend time with. The king we should love to worship. The king we should constantly be wanting to grow in our relationship with him. The king who who it is not toil to serve. That's who that king is. Now many years later, when Peter reflects on this experience on the top of the mountain, friends. He applies the transfiguration to the lives of Christians in a way that might be very surprising to you. Turn with me uh, to 2 Peter chapter 1. I just had Bible blindness. I was going the wrong way for... Second Peter. See, it happens to me too. I know it's in there. Second Peter 1. Because some of you are saying, well, you know, Mike, yeah, if Jesus would give me a mountaintop experience, I could follow him. Right? I mean, you're constantly saying we should, we should respond <laughs> in a radical way, but, but the disciples had greater advantages than us, didn't they? Wrong. Wrong. Even Peter said that. Peter, who was one of the three on the mountain. Look at what he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. It's page uh, uh, 1018 in your pew Bible. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear echoes of Matthew 17 and 16? But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Huh, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the transfiguration, guys. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. See, Peter is thinking about the transfiguration. Peter is thinking. He's one, think about this. He's one of only three people on the earth who got to be on the top of that mountain. And you would say quite reasonably or think that that is a rare experience. Of course, if you had that mountaintop experience and you were one of the three, of course you would be sold out for Jesus Christ, right? How could anyone be more sold out for Jesus Christ than those three guys who were on that mountain? Because there is no experience of Jesus that could be greater than that, right? I mean, you see him transfigured with your own eyes. You hear the Father's testimony. How many people have heard the Father's testimony like that? So it sounds initially like Peter is distancing himself from every other Christian. 
But look at verse 18. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the mountain. And now, now, and we have something more sure. What? The witness of the transfiguration is telling us, he who heard the Father's glory with his, uh, the Father's testimony of Jesus' glory with his ears and saw Jesus' glories with his own two eyes, he says there is greater confirmation of Jesus' kingship, of Jesus' glory than that. What possible means could there be for a Christian <clears throat> to access something greater than that? How could you possibly exceed that? How could you possibly ever imagine a testimony or proof of Jesus' glory that is greater than the experience that they had on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, Peter says it this way. What we have that's more sure is the prophetic word. Your Bible. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you see what Peter is saying about your Bibles? I want you to see this. We live in an era where the church is just putting the Bible aside, where Christians think that they don't need to live by this word. And Peter is saying to you, what people, what people want today, they want, they want to experience God. They want to go into the woods and experience God. And Peter is saying, they want mountaintop experiences. I want a mountaintop experience too. But you know what Peter's saying? He's saying every time you open your Bible, there's something greater than a mountaintop experience, something higher than the Mount of Transfiguration experience. He says every time you open your Bible, do you know what's happening? The Holy Spirit is carrying you up above the highest of mountains on the earth to the highest of all places to hear the Father's testimony from his throne about his Son, that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Every time, in every page of your Bible, that mountaintop of experience is waiting for you. So do you see, my friends, why it is not only foolish but offensive to neglect your Bible when you are a Christian? It is foolish. It is offensive. How long have you had a Bible in your life? Do you know it? And let me say it this way. Do you know him through it? Friends, what we've been given by the Holy Spirit, the most ordinary civilian Christian, has been given a prophetic word that is more sure than the witness on the Mount of Transfiguration. We dare not squander that. We dare not say no thank you to the Holy Spirit when he bids us to follow him to the top of the Father's throne to hear his testimony about the Son. How, what is wrong with us when we say no thank you, my plate is too full for that. I'm, I'm a little tired of hearing the Father testify about his Son's glory I'm busy. 
Something about that needs to be changed. And it won't be your willpower. It will be a vision of the glory of Jesus and a hunger for him. Every time you open this Bible, the crown of Jesus is being set before you, my friends. Don't you want to see it? Let's think now in the minutes that we have together about Jesus' second transfiguration, the power of his cross. Friends, when Jesus climbed that mount, the first mount of his transfiguration, that was not the last mountain he would climb, right? There was another mountain he had to climb, and it would be his hardest, yet it would cost him everything, and it was his greatest labor of love, and that was Mount Calvary, the mount of his second transfiguration. It was the darkest of all mountains. It was the lowest of all mountains. It is the loneliest of all mountains. And Jesus climbed that mountain to be transfigured for us. He didn't didn't do that for himself. He climbed this mountain for us. And it cost him everything. Now let's turn in our Bibles again. I know I'm moving you around a lot through the scriptures today, but, but uh, hey, after what Peter says, that's good, right? Just putting into a- action what Peter has taught us. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the very end, or you can just look at your assurance of pardon from this morning. We're going to look at verse 21, the last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, pages, uh, on page 966 in your pew Bible. Now, I want, you to, I want you to think very carefully about how the, with me about how the Apostle Paul explains Jesus' second transfiguration in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. I just, want to, I just want, to, I want to think with you about this verse very carefully, and I want to focus in now on the first half of this verse. Now, notice what Paul says. For our sake, he... That's God, the Father, made him to be sin. That him is Jesus. Him to be sin who knew no sin. Now think about that. What's what's he describing? What he's describing is Jesus' second transfiguration on the cross. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Now think about that. You and I know sin. We know what it tastes like. We know what it feels like. We've grown numb in many ways to its shame and to its horror and even to the guilt of sin racking our conscience. We know it. We live it. But what Paul is saying is that on the cross... The one who was crucified had never known sin before the cross. And he climbed that mountain of Calvary in order to know sin from the inside. Every step he took toward Calvary, think about it, 
he knew that once he climbed to the top of Calvary and let himself be crucified on that mountain, he would not only know sin, but he would know all the sins of all his people for all time from the inside out. Not as a fully informed spectator of those sins, but as a fully guilty perpetrator of them. Because Jesus was made the sins of his people on that cross. That's why he went to the cross. Friends, this needs to be very concrete for you. He wasn't, there is no such thing as an abstraction of sin. No, what Jesus paid for on the cross, what he was willing to know from the inside, what he was willing to be made, were all the particular concrete sins of every one of his people for all time. Not some vague cloud of sin. No, the concrete sins that you and I have committed, and he was made those. That means that he was transfigured on the cross into your sins and mine. He was transfigured by being disfigured according to the image of our sin. That was the only way. It was the only way, for how would God be just? How could the righteous, how else could the righteous God answer your sins and my sins? He couldn't just take punishment detached from the sins themselves. No, he had to be made our sins so that all the guilt of our sins was legitimately on him, taken as his obligation on the cross. The guilt didn't stay on us. And the punishment just fell on him. No, when he was made sin, friends, he became, was transfigured by being disfigured according to the image of your sin and your guilt because then and only then and only by that means could the wrath of God justly fall on him as a perfect substitute for you and me. That is what the crown of Jesus Christ was willing to do. I just find that amazing. You have got to see... Oh, let me say this. Some of you are racked with guilt about things you've done in your life and maybe things you are doing. You wake up in the morning... And what's on your screen is your dirty, filthy history. Well, let me tell you something. You need to mourn that. And you need to mourn it. If you're a Christian, you need to mourn it as as unbelief. If you're non-Christian, you need to mourn it and hightail your life to Jesus Christ right now. Because you know what happened at the cross? Jesus became, he literally made himself willingly, made himself the filthiest, the guiltiest person who had ever lived. So there is no one who has ever walked or will ever walk the face of the earth who is filthier 
or guiltier than Jesus Christ. And that means that, that, that Jesus Christ was on the cross when he was made sin. And that means that there is hope for everyone because Jesus set the floor in his second transfiguration. And that is wonderful. Friends, that is the explanation of Jesus' crown. You have to measure his crown by his cross. But friends, you know what? Jesus wasn't the only one who was being transfigured on the cross. He was not the only one being transfigured on the cross. And this is where this connects powerfully with our lives, and we need to think this through. And to do that, I want you to look with me at the second half of what Paul describes in in verse 21 in chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now, now notice this. Why did God do that? Why did God make Jesus sin who knew no sin? So that in him, we, in him, do you notice that? In him, we, well, who are we? We're sinners. Might become the righteousness of God. You see that huge transformation. Jesus's transfiguration on the cross. This is what that means, friends. Jesus's transfiguration on the cross was every Christian's transfiguration on the cross. Every bit of darkness, every uh, every grain and weight of guilt that crushed Jesus's soul on the cross, every every aspect of his suffering, all the shame, when you and I watch and think about what happened on the cross, all the guilt, all the sin that he was made, all the shame associated with it, and then all of the holy wrath of God poured out upon Jesus when we, there at the cross as our substitute, when we see that, what we should see is not only the wonder of what he is bearing for us, but what has been lifted from us. For in every aspect of Jesus' guilt on the cross, we are being pardoned. Every aspect of his shame that is on him, every consequence of our sin that is laid on Jesus on the cross means, friends, that it has been lifted away from us because it can't be in two places at once. So you watch Jesus bear the wrath of God for your sins and you remember that there is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. It's not on you anymore. All of it, Jesus made his so that none of it would ever be yours. It went there on him and it is never, ever, ever coming back, Christian. Ever. You are not stronger than God. You cannot pull it off of Jesus and stick it back to yourself. So every time you are frozen and paralyzed by your guilt, if you are in Christ, friends, that is not humility. That is the pride of unbelief, and you should get down on your face and repent. Can you unmake what God has made? No, you can't. But that's only the first part of what we were given. Because Paul says that the righteousness of God 
is what we were made on that cross as well. So everything that was ours went on to Jesus. And it's never coming back. That is a one-way imputation. Never, ever coming back. Do you hear that? And there is another one-way imputation to the sinner. And that is the righteousness of Jesus Christ which came to you. You were transfigured when you, friends, at the cross, if you're in Christ, you were transfigured. Your guilt, your sin, your liability to God's wrath, your shame was taken away. And Jesus' righteousness and all the rights and blessings of God that come with it was given to you fully at the cross so that it is now yours. Friends, do you realize that in the moment of your conversion, you were made as righteous in the sight of God as you will be at the end of the last day of the 10 billionth year you are in heaven? Do you know that? The Christian life is not about a rising righteousness. Oh no, friends, you got it all at your conversion because you were transfigured at that cross. And so, friends, it doesn't matter whether you feel guilty or not. What matters is whether you are guilty. It doesn't matter whether you or I feel pardoned or not. What matters is whether we are pardoned or not. You see, our big problem is we read the cross backwards. We place the subjective before the objective. We say, hey, the cross is, the power of the cross is only as powerful as I feel the power of the cross. Wrong. Jesus and his Father and the Holy Spirit did not consult us when they accomplished this awesome transaction on Calvary, when Jesus climbed the lowest mountain of all in order to be transfigured for us. Friends, the only thing that matters is whether you are forgiven, whether you are guilty. And if you're in Christ, you are forgiven, and you aren't guilty anymore. No more. No guilt in life. No fear in Death, that is objectively true about you if you're in Christ. And if you're a non-Christian, friends, you have guilt. It doesn't matter whether your feelings tell you otherwise. Jesus' cross rebuts your feelings authoritatively. And so the king of both of these mountains, the king of the mountain of his glory and the uh, the glory of his crown and the king of the mountain of the glory of his cross he addresses every single one of us here and he calls us to come to him to rest in his work he's the king of both of those mountains And if you're a non-Christian, he is calling you to come to him and rest in his work this morning. He says to those who are already his people, rise and have no more fear, for I was transfigured for you. 
and you have now been transfigured forever by me. Let's pray. We believe, Lord Jesus, please help our unbelief. We pray in your name.